Welcome to Talk is Jericho, the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and home of the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Here we go. Yes, Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan here, still dealing with that laryngitis from the spider bite in Zurich, Switzerland. Not joking. I, you know, this. I, I got to tell you that this nun, she was taking a bath, and there was a knock on her door, and there's a nun. You know, she's like, oh, who's there? And the answer was, it's the blind man. And she's like, oh, he's blind. Poor shepherd, you know. Um, well, come on in. And a guy comes in. And he goes, hey, nice tits. Where do you want me to hang the blinds? Thank you very much. Oh, my gosh. That's great. Uh, not much else to say about that one. Uh, Duff going a little blue there, but thanks to Duff for delivering the jokes week in and week out, no matter what he has going on in the world, including laryngitis from a spider bite or a Guns N' Roses tour. How about the fact they played Locomotive the other night in Wichita for the first time in like 27 years? One of my favorite Guns N' Roses songs. Uh, GNR is in Austin tonight, Friday, October 11th for Austin City Limits Festival. And then they're headed to Tennessee on Sunday to play the Exit 111 Festival. Get tickets to any of the upcoming dates at GunsNRoses.com and go check out Duff. Ask him to tell you some jokes because uh, he's very good at it. So speaking of good, Brian Alvarez is always very good on the Wrestling Observer uh, Live, Wrestling Observer Radio on WrestlingObserver.com. And he returns to talk as Jericho today to talk about the 100 things WWE fans should know and do before they die. His new book, and he's going to tell us about some of the things that made his list of 100 things and how hard it was to come up with the list in the first place. We're going to talk about some of the obvious stuff like WrestleMania, Monday Night Wars, Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan. We'll also get into some more uh, controversial list items like Crown Jewel and Chris Benoit. And we'll talk about one of my favorites in the book, the Intercontinental title. And of course, we're going to talk about the state of wrestling today, AEW coming on the scene, how that's changed things for WWE, how it's changed things for the business. Here we go. Brian Alvarez uh, right here now on Talk is Jericho. All right, so here with uh, Brian Alvarez uh, of uh, the Wrestling Observer, also coming on the Jericho Cruise, which is going to be a total blast, man. I'm super excited that you guys are going to be there. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm very excited to go on the cruise. It is um, coming three months after my next child is born, so it literally will be the first time that I leave the house in three <laughs> months for a week on a boat. Well, I was laughing when uh, when you were announcing to Dave who was all going to be on it. Dave basically had no idea, like that you know Flair was going to be there and AEW was going to be there, and uh, it, it's one of those things because it, it, it happened to me too. You accept the gig and it sounds like fun, whatever, and then you know you continue on with your life, and a year later here comes the cruise. But we had such a blast, man! It's going to be uh, you're going to really dig it. It's going to be a, one of those things that you go, holy smokes, man! I'm glad that we really got involved in it. Yeah, we did a thing on Observer Live, obviously, talking about it as well, which got Mike Sempervivi in trouble, I might add. Yes, he's always in trouble had, with me. Yes, we had we had a lot of people that had been on the cruise last year, and they said it was so much fun. Like, everybody was so nice. Everybody was great. People had stories about, oh, I was drinking with the Briscoes to like 5 a.m. and all of these crazy stories or whatever. But it should be awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Semper Vivi, man. He, uh, he he won't leave me alone. I think I, I blocked him at some point, then I unblocked him, and then I yes. had to block him again. I'm going to try and block him on top of the block just out of principle at this point. Yes. Yes. Um, good old Semper Vive. But anyways, we're here today to talk about your uh, brand new book, and I told you I'm coming into this completely uh, 
completely a clean slate because I just know the title, which is 100 Things WWE Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Um, you're which, playing Larry King is what you're doing. <laughs> dude, you just nailed it. I've done Larry King a bunch of times. He's one of my favorite guys to do, but he has no idea what you're talking about. Might not even remember exactly who you are. Uh, when you first come on on there, so, um, but yes, yeah, so and of course you are a, a multi-time published author. You did uh, the death of WCW, and then there was a, a newer version of that. So I guess just to go right into it, what made you decide to write uh, this book with this specific topic? When I finished the second death of WCW, the expanded version, like I didn't really have any desire to ever do another book again. Quite frankly. But, it's hard. It's hard to write a book. Dude, it is so hard. You know, you've yeah. done so many books. But, but I mean, you're doing books. I mean, I don't want to say that what you did was easy. Obviously, it wasn't. But at least you're doing a book about your own life. Right. If you're doing a book about your life, sometimes you can just sit down and write about your life for a long time. I mean, doing a book like The Death of WCW, I mean, there's so much research. There's There's having to watch Nitros again, for the love of God. I mean, it's when I was done with that book, it was just... When I was done with the first one, I said, I'm never going to do this again, ever. Mm-hmm. Like, this thing could sell 5 million copies. I'm not doing another book again. It's just not worth it for my life. So then, like, 10 years later, all this time has passed, and they said, do you want to do the expanded version? And it was like, I got all the stuff that we took out of the first edition, so I may as well just throw that stuff back in and write some new stuff, and it'll be fine. So I finished that one and thought, I'm never going to do another book again. So this was an example of them contacting me and saying, we have this idea for a book. Would you be interested in doing it? This is your publisher. Yes, this is Triumph Books, 100 Things. So they do a series, 100 Things that such and such should know and do before they die. They've got Pearl Jam. They've got sports teams. They've got everything you can think of, Led Zepp, whatever. So they wanted to do a WWE book. And they sent me all of these different books. And I looked at it and I thought, I can do this without killing myself, and I think I can do a good job with it. That's what I thought in my head. Mm-hmm. And so I said, let's do it. And they had like, I don't know, it was nine months or whatever before it had to be done. Maybe even longer. I think they wanted it out for SummerSlam 2019, and I think they contacted me around SummerSlam 2018. So I had a lot of time. I could pace myself. I could do like one entry every day or whatever and get it done. So I said, let's do it. And it was very hard, but when it was done, I didn't feel like I did after death. Right. Well, it's one of those things too. Like when you actually go into you know writing a book, for example, and I think for my first book, the amount of hours you put in combined to the amount of money you make, I think I ended up making like two dollars and twelve cents an hour uh, to do it. Like the, the time that you have to put into it is off the charts ridiculous. So for you to do kind of a list book, was it a little bit easier to do it this way or was it just as hard or was it more time? I think it was easier because the first thing they said was just make the list. Like before you do anything, just make the list. Make a hundred make a hundred things. Mm-hmm. So I think I came up with like 105, 110 or so and I sent it around to a bunch of people and I asked them, is there anything missing? Is there anything that I could combine? What do you think? Blah, blah, blah. We cut it down to 95. And honestly, once you have 95, I mean, as long as you don't wait till the last minute, I mean, you just do one every time you have the opportunity to do one. And the next thing you know, you've got 95. I mean, it's not like easy or anything like that, but at least there's like there's a very specific structure 
that you can write around. So it ended up being easy in that sense. I just had to make sure, okay, I got, you know, 85 days left and I got 42 more to write or whatever. So I need to make sure that every other day I've got one written. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it was easier. But I mean, obviously, like the hardest part of the book is you got to write 100 entries, about 100 people, yourself included, and they've got to be a thousand words or less. That was something that I didn't really anticipate that ended up being really hard. So what is a thousand words? Does that translate to two pages or three pages? That's probably about anywhere between three and four pages. Gotcha. So just by that alone, you're looking at 300, 400 pages of a book. So um, what we're like, I guess, what, like when you're thinking about what kind of subjects do you have to do or know before you die? Like, are you putting in like different characters in the business, different historical moments? Um, where do you where do you kind of start to put that list together from? Well, the first thing I thought was. I mean, there's no way you're going to come close to 100 things that a WWE fan should do before they die. Mm -hmm. Like, that you have to do. Like, going to WrestleMania, attending WrestleMania Live, you've just got to do that if you're a WWE fan. I mean, it's the biggest show of the year. Like, whatever you think of WWE, it's always an awesome time. Sometimes it's a little long, but it's it's a great time. So, mm -hmm. you're not going to find 100 things like that. You're going to have maybe 15, 20. So, then it was characters, like famous people. And so I went through the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame and I basically said, like, if you're in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, you've got to be in this book. And I went through all of those. And then I went through moments like you need to know about the Montreal screw job. You probably should know about the creation of the WWE title. You probably should know whatever, you know, the Vince McMahon, Steve Austin feud and what that meant for wrestling, the Monday Night Wars. I went through all of those. And then, you know, if you go through all of the historical figures, all of the big moments and all of the things that you should do, I mean, you're actually very close to a hundred things right there. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was pretty easy to fill up the list. And that's basically it. Like the most important people, the most important events and the things that you should do. So you talk about, let's say going to WrestleMania and what was your first WrestleMania that you went to? I think the first WrestleMania I went to, well, it was the one in Seattle. Okay. Uh, I was in two or whatever it was. And that's the first one I went to because it was here and then starting in about 2006, with the exception of Orlando the second time, because I was so upset about the first time. What was the first time? Oh, dude, there was a WrestleMania in Orlando, whatever year it was, and I couldn't get anywhere. Nobody could get anywhere. It was like every single freeway was shut down. Oh, wow. It was so miserable. And I was so mad when it was over. I was like, I will never go to Orlando for WrestleMania again. <laughs> they ever said, oh, by the time they come back, you're going to go. I didn't go. I never, I will never go back to Orlando again if I can help it. But other than that, I've been every WrestleMania since 2006. It's funny because I never went to a WrestleMania live. I, I, my first live WrestleMania was the first WrestleMania I was ever in, which was 15, maybe 16. It was Anaheim, me and Benoit versus Angle. But the first WrestleMania I ever saw was WrestleMania 2 on closed circuit TV. Wow. That archaic thing, right? Yes. So I vividly remember going with my friend Googe, uh, the Googe, Dan Googe on, and he was so disappointed. He's like, you mean there's not going to be one live wrestling match there? And I'm like, no, it's just like it's all on TV. And it's like, why are we watching it on TV? Because it's WrestleMania. Like, duh. So I saw WrestleMania 2, 4, and 5 on closed circuit. And they never had 3 for some reason, which is really a bummer because that, of course, was the big one with Hogan and Andre. Yeah. But that's yeah. how I used to watch it back in the day before pay-per-view was on closed circuit. 
Yeah, they had closed circuit, and then they moved to pay-per-view, and now we've got the network. And let me let me ask you this from from a fan standpoint, and obviously, you know, you're in you're in the industry, and you're you're a wrestler as well, and you you know you you report on it. You're one of the the premier kind of pundits when it comes to wrestling. But you said your first one was 2003 in Seattle. Yes. Were you in the business then, or were you completely just going as a fan? Oh no, I was. I have been. I've been wrestling inside a wrestling ring since 98, and we had our own little promotion since probably 94, but prior to 98, I mean, we ran shows at a gymnastics academy on their spring floor, and so we had no ring, and so we didn't know really, I mean, we sort of knew what we were doing, but not really. There were some local guys around here that helped us do stuff, but I never really count that as like my actual career. I count being in the ring, so I'd been a wrestler for like five, six years before I went to that WrestleMania. So you're kind of going in it as as a, uh, in the biz, but kind of a fan. But just explain it for people who haven't been, just how um, I guess how much of a, of a of an amazing experience it is. It's like going to a Super Bowl, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I think one of the things too. I mean, I'm kind of not the best person to explain this because I'm not a fan of sports. Mm-hmm. Like I don't I don't go to sports events. I don't watch sports on television. I mean, I watch wrestling and. I have so much wrestling that I've always watched that, you know, my spare time is not spent in front of the TV. I don't watch any shows or anything like that. And so to me, like I'd never been to a big football game with my buddies or a baseball game, maybe once or twice or whatever. But I just always gone to wrestling events and these little armories. I mean, a lot of fans nowadays, you can go to a wrestling event like an indie and there's, you know, a thousand people there or whatever. Like the indies are on fire right now. But I mean, back then... I mean, around, especially around Washington, I mean, you're in a little tiny armory and there's maybe 200 people right there. And it's just this little tiny thing. And every now and then WWE will come to the key arena, which, you know, there's maybe, I don't know, six to 8,000 people in there. So then you go to WrestleMania and the WrestleMania at Safeco Field. I mean, it's just, you can't even believe how many people are there watching wrestling. This place is packed and it's just you can't even believe that this many people are there for a pro wrestling event and it's all of the biggest matches all of the biggest stars i mean everybody's just there going crazy i mean it's really hard to explain it really is like if you're a sports fan it's like going to an actual sporting event but you're watching pro wrestling which if you don't normally go to wrestlemania it's almost inconceivable how many people are actually there watching pro wrestling Right, right. And just the whole thing with you with the fan festival and all that sort of stuff. It always amazes me. Like if you it's a lot like being a Kiss fan or a Star Wars fan. Um, I mean, we just played a couple shows this weekend with Nickelback. Super hated, but yet have the biggest fans in the world. Like if you if you're not into it, you'll never understand it. But when you go there, then you start getting a, a sense of like, oh, my gosh, there's a whole counterculture here where people live and die about uh with wrestling and a lot of people don't even know what it is at this point in time so i think if you're ever going to see one show as as a potential fan wrestlemania is the one you should go check out well not only that you talk about that that fan fest i mean this was before access when i went to seattle and if you if you go to wrestlemania like now i mean you're gonna go there and there's access and then there's all of the other shows that piggyback off wrestlemania weekend and StarCast has started up, right. and it's crazy when you go to one of these WrestleManias or one of these big events and then go to, like, a StarCast. 
there are so many rabid fans, and they're totally different. Like, you go to a WWE Access, and you got a totally different kind of rabid fan than you would get if you went to a StarCast. They're just totally different. Like, the StarCast people, they know all about New Japan. They know all about the guys in AEW. You go to a, a, an Access, and nobody has any idea. You can wear a New Japan shirt, and nobody even points it out. It's a totally different – there's two hardcore audiences that are into pro wrestling. Exactly, exactly. And then, of course, talking about some of the big names uh, that the people will go to see. And you talk about some actual people. Can you even mention, I think you said yourself included, meaning me. So is there a Chris Jericho entry in this book? Oh, yes. And in fact, I did yours fairly early. And yours was one of the hardest entries to write. Because the whole thing with the book is I don't want I don't want this book to be something where people open it up and they're like, dude, I could just go to Wikipedia and read what mm-hmm. he did in his career. So my whole thing was, in a thousand words, I need to explain to hardcore and casual fans, because I wanted to I want hardcore and casual fans to appreciate the book. I gotta write this guy's whole career in a thousand words. I need to put it in context. I need to write about all of the important things. I need to point out what is more important than maybe something else. And I need to do it in a thousand words. Mm-hmm. So I start writing yours and I probably wrote like 4,000 words <laughs> or 5,000 words and I wasn't even done yet. And it was very early on in the book. And so I was kind of thinking like, God, I gotta, I gotta cut this down because if I don't like, this is going to be, you know, a 700 page book and it can't be, it's gotta be 350 pages, whatever. Right. So you had done, I'm not just saying this because I'm on your show, but like everybody should know this if they followed your career. You have done so many things from the day you broke in all the way up until today, by the way, and you're still doing huge things coming up Saturday. And there's a lot of things. I mean, it, it's kind of like, what do I take out? What, what about Chris Jericho's career can I take out of this? Right. Like you don't want to take out stuff from the very beginning. You can't take out anything from Nitro. You can't take it out anything from when you first went to WWF. You can't take out anything from when you left and then came back. You can't take anything out from 2008. I mean, it's just, it was so hard to do yours because you'd done so many things. Now, thankfully, there were a lot of people that hadn't done so many things, and so it ended up working out just fine. But yours was one of the more challenging entries to put into that book. And like I said, so, so so you would say like it's just kind of fitting into the to the title, a hundred things to know and do. So you need to know Chris Jericho, for example, if you're a WWE fan. Is that kind of the reason why I'm in there? Yeah. You are one of the most important figures gotcha. in WWF WWE history. So if you're a fan, like if you're a new fan and you don't know who Chris Jericho is, like you need to know who he is to be a fan of WWF. WWE. Right, gotcha. So who else falls into that category from actual personalities? Oh man, like everybody. I mean, if you're a, a Observer Hall of Fame or Observer Reader, I mean, anybody in the Hall of Fame is in there. Vince McMahon, Triple H, Steve Austin, Rock, Shawn Michaels. I mean, you and Edge and Christian and I mean, every big name. I'm not really looking at their Hall of Fame, like Coco Beware doesn't have an entry. <laughs> but I mean, if you're an important figure, if you're one of the, if, if you were the champion for any length of time, I mean, you're probably going to be in this book. Angle, Benoit, whole nine yards. So you, by including Benoit in there, how, how does that kind of, do, do you talk about him 
his performances? Do you talk about the 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 kind of adverse effect he had on the business after after the tragedy? How do you you know go about talking about about him? Well, that was honestly the hardest one of all of them to write because I was a friend of his and right. I knew him not like you did, obviously, but we talked on the phone all the time. Really? And, really? Oh yeah. Just about and, the business or about. The- yeah. I, I knew him from probably uh, around the time of spring stampede 1999, hmm. I think, which was the show that was here in Tacoma. And I met him there and we talked all the time. And so it's a very personal entry because I knew the Chris Benoit that like when I talked to him was just like the nicest wrestler I'd ever talked to. And he was always so polite. And when Eddie Guerrero died, he sent me a chair from the Cow Palace show where Eddie Guerrero won the title. And he sent me this letter. And it was this letter that was just talking about how much Eddie meant to him and and all of this stuff. I actually put the letter, I published the letter in the book. Like I'd never published this anywhere before. Wow. So I wrote like, I had to write his biography. I had to write like about our relationship and I had to write about what he did. And then I had to write about the aftermath. And when he killed his family, I wrote a full figure four weekly about everything, like our relationship and just thought everything. And I, I never like I wrote it and I never looked at it. I'd never proofread it. I never read it back. I just dream of consciousness wrote this thing and I published it and I never looked at it again because it's just so devastating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then what I had to do for this entry was I had to go back and read it for the first time. I had to go back and get that letter and I basically had to relive all of that. And it was brutal. And so there's a full chapter in there that talks about everything. I mean, when they approached me about the book, they said, first question, do you want this to be a book for kids or do you want it to be a book for adults? And I said, well, I want it to be a book for adults. And they were mainly asking about Hulk Hogan because Hulk Hogan had the sex tape. He right. had the, uh, the whole thing and said, like, are you going to write about this stuff? And I said, I'm going to write about everything. And I'll try to write about it in a way where if you're a nine-year-old, like you can read this book. Not going to be a lot of profanity, not going to go into detail about Hogan's sex tape or anything like that, but like there was one. So I'm going to write about it. And I was going to write about what happened with Benoit. Mm -hmm. So that was very hard. But it's all in there, everything he did, all the details, his career and everything. What um, what exactly, I mean, you don't have to say it verbatim, but what was the letter uh, about Eddie like talking about? He just wrote this letter and he he talked about how how close he was with Eddie and how he could talk to him about anything and he hoped that his kids could someday uh, have a friend like the friend that he had in Eddie. It's just a very personal letter about how important he was and how devastated he was that he wasn't with us anymore. It's so strange. I'm saying like once again, not that you guys weren't close like you said but i found that over the years i've had there's a few stories like that of people that chris knew but maybe not knew super well that he confided in about very deep stuff it's almost like he felt more comfortable talking to more acquaintances than to actual super close friends about some of this stuff it could have been i mean yeah, I mean, I wasn't super close. It was not like I'm traveling on the road with him or anything right. like that. Right, and that's my point. Not that you weren't close, yeah. but it's a different relationship, right? 
Yeah, and and he's not the only one that I think probably does that in wrestling. You know, I I think that maybe I don't know. It's it's hard to explain, but I can I can understand it kind of being like that. You know, you're you're. I mean, maybe you don't want to talk about these things with people that you travel with every day. I mean, maybe there's that part of you that's like, you know, wanting to be very masculine or whatever and not talk about your feelings with other dudes that are in pro wrestling or whatever and maybe wanting to talk to about with other people. I don't know. It's for some reason, like we always talked about everything. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting that you're able to kind of to, to, to write about that. What else do you have? Do you have well, you mentioned kind of the Hulk Hogan thing. Do you have more controversial type of things are you trying to keep it lighter or like what what are some of the other controversies that you talk about that that WWE fans have to know about well i think the most recent one was i had an entry about crown jewel of all things oh wow and i mean who even knows i mean it's it's a book that like it's out and i mean i don't want to not sell the book right now but i mean there are things in the book that are already outdated because uh-huh. wrestling changes so quickly I mean, I think in your entry, I wrote about how you just signed with AEW or you just agreed to go to AEW or whatever. And meanwhile, like, for all I know, you could be the champion at this point next week. And none of that's in the book, obviously, because the deadline was WrestleMania weekend. But, I mean, who knows in 10 years what people are going to think about the Saudi Arabia deal. But, I mean, right now, it's a pretty significant deal. I mean, you can look at at WWE business and WWE network subscriptions, and, and there were... There were big drops after they went to Saudi Arabia, and it was a very controversial thing, and it was something that I felt when I wrote the book that, you know, this is a tough period for WWE right now. I mean, they're making more money than they've ever made. They're going to make more money than they've ever made by a wide margin starting in October, but if you look at things like raw ratings and attendance, I mean, canceling entire house show loops, like canceling five shows, not just one show, like canceling the whole weekend of shows or whatever. I mean, it's a rough time for wrestling operations right now. And that came at a time where they probably don't need more controversy, but they wanted the money and they took the money. And a lot of fans were very upset about it. So that was a controversial thing that I wrote about. And then obviously things like the Montreal screw job, which to this day, I mean, there's still people that think that it was a work and I mean, honestly, if you weren't following wrestling back then and you (laughs) look at today, I mean, it seems like there's no way this is real, but it's just that the business has changed. It's totally different now. Let's go back to uh, to the crown jewel thing. You said a couple things that like, um, do you really feel and and I kind of see it. I mean, you can see that 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 there's a subtle backlash towards WWE for, for the Saudi Arabia uh, business deal. And the fact they went over there and didn't really give a shit what anybody else thought or what was going on in the world around them. Well, it's kind of weird because obviously they went over there for the money. And it was really interesting seeing how they promoted it because they would do all of these commercials for Crown Jewel, but they would never tell you where they were going. It was like this show from an undisclosed location. Like every other pay-per-view deal or whatever, they talk about this or that, but they never mentioned they were going to Saudi Arabia. And then when they were there, when they put like, you know, they always put up the city state or whatever country, they just wrote they're in Jeddah. Didn't even say Saudi Arabia. So they knew how controversial this was. But at the end of the day, they were making so much money that it was like, we'll accept the backlash. We'll accept if anybody ends up canceling the network because of this. But there's so much money that we can't turn it down. 
And Dave kind of went through and sort of tracked everything. And I think the number that we came up with was probably about 35,000 people quit the network after the Crown Jewel show. And okay. you don't know if they're going to like come back at WrestleMania. You don't know anything about that stuff. You only can track like what happened at any given time. But I mean, there was definitely a backlash. When they mentioned the word Saudi Arabia, there was there was very clearly booing. But it's hard to say like how much of a backlash and how permanent that backlash was. Well, and that's the thing. If let's say thirty five thousand people left the network forever, and what are they charging a month? Ten bucks, right? Yeah. So it's one hundred twenty bucks a year times thirty five thousand. I mean, it's not going to be five hundred million dollars. No. So, and that's kind of the the way that they operate. Well, you 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 take the good and then take the bad and see where the price tag ends up. So, you know, cause you do kind of see that, but, but I think one thing that WWE has done and always does is like, well, people will bitch and complain, but they're always going to come back. You know, that's kind of the attitude they have. Like we'll, we'll tell you what's good. If you don't like it, we don't care, you know? Yes. Right. So. And the thing too, that is, that is a little bit different now is what you said has been true forever. But this year when WWE went up against football and everybody was expecting the bounce back in January, like they didn't get a big bounce back. Mm -hmm. And the WWE network numbers right now, they lost. I mean, they're they're below where they were last year. So we finally got to the point where there are fans who are leaving and actually not coming back. And it's hard to say, like, why that is and if they'll never come back. But it is different this year. And I think that for a lot of them, I mean, there are now so many alternatives, whether whether it's New Japan World or AEW is going to be starting on Wednesday or, I mean, there's a million streaming services for indies. And plus, there's so much WWE that if you're watching all of the TV stuff, I mean, do you really need to watch more on the network? But there is, it, it has become a thing now where they're losing people that are not returning. Do you mention AEW in it at all? Was 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 the company even at the point where you would, I guess it's not a WWE thing, but would you mention the fact that it exists in the book or was it too early for that? Well, when I was on deadline, I needed five more entries because I, I did 95. Right. And I told them when I'm done, like do everything you do to get this book ready for publication. And then I'll do the last five. Because God only knows, like, because my uh, Bill Ames, the guys that work with me on the book, I mean, they know wrestling. They're wrestling fans. So uh, Adam Moten is my editor, and he's a fan. I think a subscriber. But I figured, like, they'll know if I forgot something. And I may do the whole thing and then realize, my God, I left out Bruno Sammartino or something totally crazy. Right. So on deadline, I had five more to write, and I wrote four, and I had one left. And I thought... Even though this is a WWE book, I wasn't going to do this. But the last entry ended up being, it's okay to not watch WWE. There's other stuff out there. And so I did a whole chapter on these are all of the things that are out there. Like, you're not cheating on your girlfriend. It's okay to watch New Japan World. It's okay. There's this AEW starting up. So I did talk about AEW in the book, but the deadline was around WrestleMania. So it was very, very early. And there wasn't like a ton that I could write about it, but I did put it in the book. Well, let's talk about that now. You know, you mentioned the book, but let's talk about how things have changed and, and, and you know, getting ready for, for the so-called Monday Night Wars. Um, what's your, how do you think 
all of this is, is, is going to pan out at this point in time. It is so hard to say because if you look back at the original Monday Night Wars, I mean, everybody was absolutely wrong about everything when it came to what would happen when Raw and Nitro went head to head. Everyone thought, oh, my God, you know, we're going to split that Raw audience, blah, blah, blah. Ended up a brand new audience showed up and the war was on. And 2019 is a totally different time. And you got to remember, too, in 2010, Impact went head to head with Raw. Right. And they got slaughtered, absolutely slaughtered. But that's also nine years ago. And so, I mean, to me, one of the big things is WWE is at a weak point right now in terms of fan engagement. They're at a very, very strong point in terms of like how much money they're making and they're not going out of business. This is not WCW. Mm-hmm. But as far as like fan engagement, it's very clear that fans are looking for an alternative. This was not the case in 2010 with Impact. So there's no better time for an AEW to kick up than right now. There's no better time. Fans are dying for something different. Now, what that means in 2019, I mean, you're going on TNT, and there hasn't been wrestling on TNT since 2001. That's a long time ago. It's a it's a new channel, but it's a strong channel. And the one thing that I think is a positive for you guys is that wrestling always does well. It just always does well. Like, you can look at the L. Ray numbers for Lucha Underground, and the numbers aren't great. But they're great for El Rey. Gotcha. Right. Look, you can look at the New Japan on access numbers, and they don't really do ratings, but they're thrilled with how New Japan is doing. You can look at the numbers for Ring of Honor on Sinclair, and if you want to compare them to WWE, they're not very good, but they're good for Sinclair. Mm-hmm. So it would actually be an aberration if you guys went on TNT and didn't do well. I mean, my 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 feeling is it's going to do well on TNT. And USA Network and NXT, I feel like they're going to do well. I don't know who's going to win, but I don't picture this as a situation where both go on these strong networks, USA and TNT, and both do poorly. I think they're going to do well. Now, whether this starts a new boom period, I have absolutely no idea. I know, I know nothing about AEW television. I know a lot about NXT TV, but I know about NXT TV on the network. It's totally different once they go to the USA Network. They're going to be changing things weekly. Why do you say that? I mean, the two there, there's a few big things. NXT on the network is one hour. It's taped in advance. And it's a very basic old school wrestling show. I love it. I love NXT on the network. But you're talking Vince McMahon putting that show on the USA Network going head to head with AEW for two hours live. And he's going to be running from full sale. Like I can't even imagine. You guys, you've you sold out like the first, what was it, five shows. They're all going to be in these big buildings. It's going to look packed. And his show is going to be in full sale in front of 300 people. Right. I mean, there's just no way that he's going to stay there. You look at the show, and one of the main reasons that so many guys are over on NXT TV is they do so many squash matches. Like, you think that Vince is going to do squash matches from full sale on the USA Network head-to-head with AEW? I mean, it's all going to change. The days of, you know, an easy one-hour TV show for six weeks building up to TakeOver, you got two hours every single week live. The TV is just going to go faster. You're going to burn through the feuds faster. It's just, it's impossible for it to be the same. 
You know, and once again, I, it, it, I can't say anything because people go either, oh, he's still obsessed with WWE or he's bitter or he's saying this or that. But to me, uh, just from an outside standpoint, A, I thought it was very brilliant for Vince to do this uh, in one way because now, ipso facto, we're kind of in competition with NXT, not with Raw or SmackDown, which once again, this is not our war. It's it's the war that, that WWE created. Yes. But B what makes NXT popular to the fan base that likes them is the fact that, like you said, it's an old school wrestling show in a, you know, it looks like it's at a high school auditorium or like the Calgary pavilion, you know, stampede wrestling. Um, there's no way that when we start going toe to toe, head to head, that like you said, one building is an arena and one building's in, you know, a television studio like Memphis in 1978, Vince is going to see that automatically and want to change it. And then to be able to fill bigger venues on a regular basis, well, what do you got to do? You need more star power. So he'll put more WWE main roster guys on there, which takes away some of the cool factor of NXT and just kind of makes it into a third brand. Now, A, like you said, that could be a whole new boom. Or B, it could take away what makes people enjoy NXT the first place. And in a lot of ways, kind of dilute or even almost ruin that brand. Yeah. I mean, I, I love NXT, and the main roster shows can be a drag. And one of the things about NXT is it's so different from the main roster. And the last thing that I, as a fan, want is for NXT to become Raw or SmackDown. That's that's not what I'm looking for. And I'm not sure that fans are looking for that. I mean, you know, Dave has talked about the possibility of SmackDown going to three hours. And as a wrestling fan, you're going to watch eight hours of main roster television every single week, plus the pay-per-views. I mean, it's so – you're asking so much from a regular fan. That's right. You're asking a lot from your fans. That's true. And the other thing is, too, it's like I don't know – and we still we still don't really know who AEW's fans are because from the analytics of it, which, of course, Tony Khan is an expert in analytics and the concept of it – I don't think there's a lot of people watching AEW that are also watching WWE pay-per-views, at least from what I've heard. So to go head-to-head or not head-to-head or whatever, I don't think it's really going to affect the audience that's going to watch AEW because I think I think there's a very small cross-section between AEW fans and WWE fans. I don't know if you know differently. Well, I mean, I just know that when I go to... I mean, I've mentioned, I mentioned earlier today, like go to Access, go to WWE Access, and then go to StarCast. And look at the difference in the fans. When I go to these StarCast shows, like we did a couple of panels, and I basically asked the people, like, how many here are here in part because you're unhappy with what WWE is giving you? And like, so many hands raised. I mean, there is a, you look at the audience for Raw and SmackDown, like how many millions of people are watching, and it's very clear that they have run off so many fans. And you know, Everybody listening to this knows when you're a wrestling fan, like you're pretty much a wrestling fan for life. For life, right. For life. It's just you love wrestling. And I think that right now the a- the AW audience is an audience that they had to put up with WWE for years. And just like you said, Vince is going to give you what he wants to give you. And if you don't like it, too bad. And I think that finally a lot of people got sick of that. And now – this is an option. This is an opportunity for them to basically say, screw you. Like, we gave you the opportunity for so long. You didn't give us what we wanted. Now there's somebody who is, and we're going to support them with everything we've got. 
And like I said, I mean, it could lead to a whole new boom or it's, you know, whatever it is, it's definitely a very interesting time. But once again, when you're talking about WWE, they're very protective of their brand and of their their their, their characters, their intellectual property. I was going to ask you right away, did you ever hear anything from them having a book that says, you know, 100 things WWE fans should do with Becky Lynch on the cover and Stone Cold and Roman and Rock and Cena? Is, is that like, are you allowed to do that without hearing from them? I have absolutely no idea. That was <laughs> that was all the publishing company. And I mean, given the fact that they've done so many different 100 things, like about everything, I mean, they've gone through this before with, you know, dozens of other subjects. So, I mean, presumably they know what they're doing. Well, I mean, obviously, like I said, it's it's uh, you can see it right there with WWE right in the middle and all that sort of stuff. So let's talk a little bit more about the book. You mentioned you wanted to get some of the biggest names. In your opinion, who is the biggest star, I guess, in WWE history, if you had to choose one? I think the biggest star in WWE history, I, I think you would have to say Hulk Hogan, mm-hmm. just because he is by far the most famous like WWF, WWE wrestler that there's ever been. And... It's kind of a difficult question because it is. I mean, I say that, but at the same time, like really the most famous is The Rock, but he's really the most famous because of his movie stuff. Right. Take take that out of the equation. Yes. Take that out of the equation. And it's Hogan. And Hogan was a guy where like your grandmother knew who Hulk Hogan was. And your grandmother doesn't necessarily know Stone Cold Steve Austin. If you talk about the most important wrestler the most important wrestler in WWE history, I mean, it's probably Steve Austin because he is the guy that turned the company around during the Monday Night Wars. And like his popularity allowed Vince to go public and become a billionaire and end up where we are today where they can do everything wrong and it doesn't matter. They're going to profit $300 million in a couple of years. So he is like, if you're looking purely at business, he's the most important guy. So I guess the top three would be Steve Austin, The Rock, and Hulk Hogan. Yeah, I got to give you that. And, 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 you know, if you have to put a fourth in there, obviously you can go old school and throw Bruno in there. But for the top three, I mean, Hogan still to this day, everyone knows who he is because basically he still looks exactly the same. Like you could still draw a picture of Hulk Hogan and it's yes. like drawing a picture of, you know, Gene Simmons as the demon. Like, oh, I know who that guy is. Yeah. Um and then also, too, you know, I was there with The Rock and Steve Austin having these two once-in-a-generation performers in the same time frame. It really is something that was such a special time in the business uh, because of that. Act. You're absolutely right, but there is also a third person there, and it's Vince. Right. Rock and Austin and Vince, like when I wrote the book, I pretty much wrote exactly what you just said, and that is that it was a little bit different, but you'll never, and I, I, I know people say never say never in wrestling, and maybe I'll end up being wrong, but I don't think there's ever going to be a time where you have a Rock, an Austin, and a Vince McMahon all at the same time. Right. It's like impossible. You know what I'm saying? Like the Steve Austin-Vince McMahon feud where you had the common man and you had the hated boss. I mean, I can't yeah. imagine ever having two guys who could play that role better at the same time. Vince was the greatest heel boss 
like in the history of wrestling. They've tried with everybody. They've tried every heel GM. They've tried every McMahon. Nobody was better than Vince. Nobody was better than Steve Austin at playing his foil. They were perfect together. And you had The Rock at the same time. Like it's an impossibility. You also had the the timing of it and the circumstances surrounding it. You had Austin as this heel that was such a, a, a cool heel in a time frame. Like you go to the mid 90s. It was turning, the society was turning just because you were a smiley face good guy didn't make you a good guy anymore. And I'm not just talking about in wrestling, I'm talking about all aspects of life, like the, you know, the shades of gray Austin kind of being an asshole, but people really responded to that. So he was turned baby face before he was actually even turned baby face, as we saw that at WrestleMania 13, where Brett and Austin basically flip flopped at the end of that match, which was one of the most genius uh, moments ever. And then throw in the fact that. Vince really did screw Bret Hart over and they took the reality and made a story into it. Vince was not supposed to be a heel in that situation. He turned himself into a heel by being such a jerk with what he did to the beloved Bret Hart and acting like he was in the right. I just love going back because I I went back with uh, my buddy Vinny and Craig and we watched all of the Raws and Nitros from the Attitude Era. We're in 2000 now. And going back and watching this stuff, that interview that Vince did after Montreal, the famous Brett screwed Brett interview. Right. And he's such a slimy yes. douchebag. And then you realize, in his mind, that was a babyface promo. He was trying to babyface himself and put Brett over as a heel. But when you watch it, you're like, what a slimy. And of course, you know, he didn't want to turn heel. He ended up having to because people hated him so badly. And it reminds me of that that famous CM Punk uh, pipe bomb promo where, as it turns out, in Vince's mind, Punk was cutting a heel promo. But, of course, <laughs> all the fans saw it is like the babyface promo to end all babyface promos. So Vince is a genius, and he's like the greatest promoter of all time, but he's definitely had some swings and misses. That at least back in 1990, you know, seven and eight, he turned into something. Well, that's where Vince's genius lies, though. He, he takes the negative and turns it into a positive. It might go completely in in against what he wants, but majority of the time, like you said, especially a, a few years past, he he recognized that. You know, I don't forget he's the one that sent Kurt Angle out there to be the ultimate babyface with the, the intelligence, integrity, and whatever the other one was. And in the middle of his first match, people turned on him. That was not supposed to happen. His first match, they turned on him so bad that Vince told the ref, tell Kurt to go grab a microphone and cut a heel promo. And Kurt was so damn good in his first match, devoid of any, you know, nervousness or or inhibitions, took the microphone and did just that. Like Vince realized, I thought this guy is an Olympic hero. He's going to be a huge baby face and everyone shit on it. So let's turn it right now. Yeah, in the middle of a match. In the middle of a match against Sean Stasiak. Think about how many times Roman Reigns got booed out of the building and he stuck by his guns. It's the same thing he did with Cena, though. He was not going to turn Cena heel no matter what. And that's what makes me laugh about the Reigns thing is it's Cena 2.0. Let's talk yeah. about Cena. Where do you rate him as far as uh, you know his, his influence and um, being like the top, top guy in the company? He's way up there. I mean, he – it's weird because, like, if you look at, at how Vince ran the company from, like, 1982 on, 
I mean, his top guys, I mean, he went through top guys, I don't want to say quickly, but if you look at how long Cena was his top guy compared to everybody else, I mean, Cena was his top guy for like a generation, forever. I mean, Cena managed to become like a big time deal and nobody has been able to do it since. Like that's the last big time major face of the company that they've been able to create. And I think they've had a lot of opportunities with other guys that they didn't go with. I mean, he gets fixated on on certain guys, and he's like, this is going to be the guy. This is going to be the face of the company. Come hell or high water. And, you know, Cena did a great job. And it's funny because everyone hated Cena, and they would always say, oh, my God, if, if you give somebody else instead of Cena, like, things will be even better, blah, blah. When Cena finally left, like, we found out how valuable John Cena was. He was very, very valuable. It was not what everybody said where, you know, if you get rid of John Cena and push somebody else, I mean, business is going to skyrocket. Cena's the one getting in the way. No, Cena was actually holding it up during that period. And when he left, they fell even further. I think another reason is because I think John was the last. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, you never say never. But that'd be like saying uh, you're a music guy. Like there's never going to be another Diamond Album Award given. And that means somebody that sells 10 million records like you know, Done. Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, and Back in Black, and, you know, some of the Shania Twain records, etc. The business has changed now to where that's literally impossible to do. I think the reason why John was kind of the last of the Mohicans of what you're talking about is they're not pushing a top, top company-carrying babyface anymore. They're pushing the company itself. It's the brand of the WWE that, that, that has much more of the uh, spotlight than anybody in the WWE itself. Yes. And I think that in some ways, that's one of the reasons. I mean, obviously, that is one of the reasons they're having some of the problems they're having today, because it's two things. They're not pushing. They're not being able. They're unable to create a new Steve Austin, Rock, Hulk Hogan, Bruno Sammartino, the way that they the way that they book their their product right now and they're also their authority figures their mcmahons are always heels and it's almost like it's i don't even really know how to explain it but like to me they're telling the fans that i don't even know how to explain it but there's something about the mcmahons as heels on television that I feel makes people upset about the company as a whole. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's, it all stems back. It's almost like the lineage of, of the McMahon family. It's like the Game of Thrones aspect of it to where just because Vince was the shit heel, um, you know, and I'm going to ask this question, have been possibly the greatest heel in WWE history that everybody who, you know, associated with him has to be a heel as well. I think the time frame of the evil McMahon authority figure has to be done by now. And that's one of the reasons why the product does seem kind of stale because you just don't need it anymore. No, and I'm watching Shane McMahon as the top heel on SmackDown. He's 50 years old. Like, I'm watching shows from the year 2000 and the shows from 2019, and he's all over both shows. Yeah. It's like, it was 19 years ago. We've got to move on. Yeah, I, I agree, and 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 um, and like I said, so so who who do you think is the, the I mentioned the most popular star? Who do you think is the biggest heel? And we've talked about Vince, and that could be the answer. It is uh, Vince completely. He's the, great, he's the greatest heel in company history. 
Which is which is interesting because you had the greatest heel in company history and like the greatest common man baby face in company history at the same time. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, and that's the that's the once again the dichotomy of it too. Because even now you're talking about you know Stephanie's a heel, but then she'll go, you know, do a, a function where she's leading the Special Olympics, and I mean they really have blurred those lines between heel and babyface and this that and other thing. But but I think Vince never really has. Even when Vince was a baby, like remember like is this one of your things where Vince gave away a million dollars a week? Oh uh, yeah. So let's talk about that for a bit. I kind of forgot about that. Until, until someone mentioned it very briefly the other day. Yeah, he, I mean, there were a few different things around that period, but for a while they were doing the million dollar giveaway. And there was actually, I, you know who's in the book, believe it or not? As one of the hundred things is of all people, Donald Trump. Oh, okay. Because as crazy as this is, like whatever you think of, of Trump as president, let's just forget that for a second. Trump and Vince did a storyline where it led to the battle of the billionaires at WrestleMania. And it was up until that point in time, that match led to the most lucrative WrestleMania of all time, because you had Vince and Trump putting their hair on the line and people were just fascinated by that match because, you know, everyone always talked about Trump's hair and for years, you know, everyone joked about Vince having a toupee or whatever. Right. And for whatever reason, <laughs> like that was up until The Rock. Think about this. Up until The Rock and John Cena, the biggest WrestleMania ever was built around Vince and Donald Trump. And they did all of those storylines where like Donald Trump bought Raw and he was going to drop money from the ceiling and like WWE investors actually freaked out because they thought that Trump really bought Raw, and so they had to do a storyline the next week where Vince brought it back. I mean, stories like this are just completely crazy, but they're true. So, yeah, I mean, as far as, like, when you look at the goofy WWF Hall of Fame and some of the wacky people, like, they'll put anybody in that Hall of Fame. But, I mean, Donald Trump, guys like Donald Trump and Mr. T and Mike Tyson, I mean, they legitimately should be in the WWE Hall of Fame because of the difference they made in business. Well, yeah, and people forget that. Like you said, like you, you said a great point, whether you like the presidential decision or not, the guy's a legit WWE Hall of Famer and deserves to be in there going all the way back to, you know, him uh, use, uh, utilizing four and, five. four and five at Trump Towers or whatever, or the Trump, yep. you know, Atlantic City. Yeah. And so that's that's the most lucrative WrestleMania in history? Up until the Rock and John Cena. Wow. <laughs> Which, by the way, when you were talking about Diamond, you know, Diamond Records, I mean, Rock and John Cena is a record that will never be broken because after they did, they grossed like it was it was about sixty five million dollars for each of those WrestleManias. Wow. And now that they're on the WWE Network and largely off pay-per-view, you'll never come close to sixty five million dollars again. Do you think it was a mistake to take themselves off pay-per-view like that? Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. I mean, you can look at the, uh, I mean, you can look at UFC. They, they started their streaming service and they did not put any of the pay-per-views on that streaming service. It was all secondary events and that sort of thing. And they still sold tons and tons of, of subscriptions for their streaming service and were still making millions and millions of dollars on pay-per-view. I mean, WWE, this is just my thought. They should have done the WWE Network exactly like they did it, 
but Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, yeah. SummerSlam, Survivor Series, all of those you can only get on pay-per-view. They would have been rolling in cash, but they were so determined to get huge numbers for this that at first, if you remember, like Vince decided they're all going to be on there except WrestleMania. And so we were expecting like the big announcement of the WWE net to be that. And then they just announced every single one of them is going to be on the network. And I remember just being flabbergasted that he made that decision. And, you know, at the end of the day, they, they ended up with 1.5 million subscribers. But you had people thinking 3 million subscribers, 4 million subscribers, like they're going to get millions and millions and it's going to be worth it. They never got that. And they're never going to get that. And they, they killed their pay-per-view business. And they threw away so much money on pay-per-view. Luckily, they got those TV deals. Yeah, because like you said, man, I mean, I really felt that there was a mistake with that. Um, but I think that obviously they were hoping to get higher you know, subscription services for the paper, for the, uh, for the network, which is why they included all of those shows. But they've been stalled at a million five for it seems like six or seven years now. Yep, they got to a million five. And, and I mean, actually, I think they're, they're lower than that now. They've actually lost. I mean, they, they were pretty much at a level where I thought they would just stay there forever, maybe slowly, you know, add a few thousand here or there. But they've actually dropped a little bit. And, like, there's no way they're ever getting three million. Certainly not getting to four or five million like like some people had projected at the time. But I mean, just think about one day, like sixty five million dollars. And now it's just all on the WWE Network. And keep in mind, WrestleMania season, they give that thing away for free to everybody. Yeah, exactly. Everyone gets it no matter what. Um, I guess as, as we wind down here, uh, do you, what's the, the influence that you have of Roddy Piper? in this obviously he'd be included how, how do you feel with, with him he's very high uh he's one of the greatest heels they ever had that never became like the world champion or really even i mean during his big run in the 80s i mean he never won anything he had that one intercontinental title run in the early 90s which was very very short but i mean he was he was a very influential character. You can see Roddy Piper in so many different heels today. He was a very, very smart guy. I mean, it was back during a period where he knew, like when I feud with Hulk Hogan, if I let this guy beat me, they're going to phase me out and I'm out of here. So he never let Hogan beat him. They did all of these different feuds and DQ finishes and that sort of thing. And he was a big time, huge star and a very important part of the first WrestleMania, very important part of, of WWF in the mid-80s, very big part of the whole uh, rock and wrestling, all of that. Huge name. Yeah, I think uh, I think Piper would, would be kind of the unsung hero of, of the expansion of WWE because you mentioned how important WrestleMania 1 was to the company and how, you know, Vince had mortgaged so much, lots of closed circuit locations, some were tanking, some were not. And at the very end, it was Piper and his promos that made people buy that show. Because, yes, it was all about Hogan and Cyndi Lauper. But if there wasn't Piper as that heel to really make people want to see Hogan win, I don't think the show would have done as good as it could have or as it did. Well, yeah, there's, there's so many things about WrestleMania 1. I mean, if you read the book, the WrestleMania 1 chapter is is super interesting. It was a lot of fun to uh, go back and, and kind of um, do all of the research. I mean, there's so many people that were so important to that first WrestleMania, like Lou Albano being on an airplane and he just happened to be sitting next to Cyndi Lauper 
and he ends up in her music video, and then she gets involved in WWE, and like Mr. T was one of the biggest TV stars of of the early 80s and getting him involved in WrestleMania and then him getting cold feet and wanting to pull out because he thought they were going to shoot on him. And Crazy, right? E-Rock and wrestling. And I mean, there's so many things about that first WrestleMania that are just, if this hadn't happened, if that hadn't happened, this coincidence. I mean, who even knows what wrestling would be nowadays if that show would have flopped? Why did Mr. T want to pull out again? So he was in the tag match and he played, you know, B.A. Baracus in the A-team. And people believed in the 80s that he was like the toughest guy in America, even though he was an actor. Right. And so he was concerned. He got cold feet thinking, dude, what if they shoot on me basically during this match and beat me, humiliate me or whatever? Like, that's the end of my career. And he got really worried about it. And he threatened to pull out. And they ended up talking him into staying and doing the match. But. You know, he was legitimately concerned that, like, my whole career could go up in smoke if one of these wrestlers gets in here and ties me in a knot and pins me or whatever. I mean, that could be the end. So, you know, he got cold feet and, you know, Paul originally he was going to get the pin in the match. And then, like, Paul Orndorff was like, I'm not putting over an actor. And they had to change the finish there. I mean, there were a lot of things about that match that were fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, <laughs> the business has changed so much, you know, uh, since those days. And it's so funny to think about how, how you know, as if anybody, any, you know, would shoot on, like, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, freaking uh, Chris Hemsworth comes on Raw and somebody shoots on him just to prove a point yeah. in this day and age. But um, I guess a lot, last question, I mean, this, this whole book sounds like a lot of fun. And, uh, I'm really looking forward to checking it out. But I guess besides the stuff that we've talked about, what's your favorite uh, of the 100 things WWE fans should know or do before they die? Something we haven't talked about yet. Oh God, my favorite one? I don't even... Or an interesting one. Of course, the last question is the one that totally stumps me. (laughs) I mean, honestly, we did just talk about it, but I really... There were a few entries that I had a lot of fun writing. I had a lot of fun writing about WrestleMania 1. I had a lot of fun writing about the history of the McMahon family. Like, obviously, Vince McMahon Jr. is the most important figure in WWF, WWE history. But he's third generation. So everybody knows, like, you know, third generation promoter, Vince McMahon Sr., etc. But I had a chance to really go back and, you know, look at Vince's grandfather. And, you know, how the McMahon family came to America and how they first got into boxing and did a little bit of wrestling. and then. You know, just kind of looking at the history of of Vince McMahon's father as a promoter before the WWF uh, kicked off and, you know, all of the controversy around the various world titles and why they even formed a WWF in the first place. And there's just a lot of fun history in there that I tried to make the book accessible to a casual fan. Like Lance Storm writes the foreword and, you know, he writes that I wish I would have had this book to give to my wife and my kids so they could understand what it is I'm even doing. Like it's a, it's a great book. If you don't know anything about wrestling, it'll kind of tell you everything about what WWE is about. But if you're a hardcore fan, like I said, I mean there, I guarantee there's stuff in there that if you're a hardcore fan, you've never heard before because I never published the Benoit letter for sure. I mean, that's one of them, but there's a lot of stuff in there that I tried to throw in to kind of give something to everybody. It's not too in-depth for a casual fan. I don't think it's too simple for a hardcore fan. 
I try to really make it a book that everybody that's a WWE fan could read and enjoy. And hopefully people check out the book and think that same thing. Yeah, just quickly run through the, the, the history of the IC title. I just love that story. Oh, the Intercontinental title yeah. where they had an alleged North American champion and, and uh, they did, a, they did a, a supposed tournament in Rio de Janeiro, which never existed, and ended up putting the belt on Pat Patterson. Um, and really, here's another thing about the, the Intercontinental title that I thought was so interesting. When I was a kid, that belt was the be-all, end-all. And it was for a lot of other fans as well, like the Intercontinental title. Like that's the Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Mr. Perfect, all of these great matches. If you go back and look at the Intercontinental title, like the glory period, it was like a year and a half. And that was the <laughs> period that it was the most important. Like people remember the uh, Ricky Steamboat, yeah. Ray Savage match at WrestleMania three, But that was like that was like one match in the middle of the 80s. Then you had a period from like 1990 to 1992 where like all the best workers had it. And then you had this short period in the 90s where, you know, like, you know, Rock and Triple H were fighting over it in a ladder match. And and then it was just like the title changed hands 9,000 times. Like China's the champion. You're the champion. We're watching the show. I can't even remember who's the champion. China, China and I are the co-champions. Co-champions, <laughs> all of that. It's like everybody remembers how great the Intercontinental title was, but they're remembering like a two-year period, yeah. and they've just never forgotten it. That's yeah, so like Pat Patterson won it in uh, Rio or something, and they just like showed up one day in Allentown and gave him the belt and say, "Say you won this in Rio." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, hey, you're talking to the uh, to the guy with the most Intercontinental championships ever. So go easy, kid. That's right. That's right. You've got the record. Hey, man, once again, great talking to you. And uh, 100 things WWE fans should know and do before they die. And it uh, sounds like you had a lot of fun with it. So I'm looking forward to, to checking out. And a forward by Lance Storm, always a, always a bonus as well. That's right. Lance, Lance is, is listed as a co-author on Amazon for Jeez. the uh, 200 words that he wrote in this book. So. He's been riding your uh, coattails for the last 10 years anyway. So it's apropos. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, my man. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. I look forward to listening to you on uh, Wrestling Observer Live today as I do every day. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. And viva Art Bell. Oh, the best. <laughs> Cheers, man. Thanks. All right, thanks so much. All right, thanks to Brian Alvarez. His book, 100 Things WWE Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, is out now. Get it wherever you buy books and get it signed by Brian tomorrow, Saturday, October 12th, if you live in the Seattle area. Brian is going to be at the Barnes & Noble in Northgate at 2 p.m. signing books. So get yourself a copy and get it signed by Brian now and listen to him on Wrestling Observer Live, Wrestling Observer Radio, pretty much seven days a week at WrestlingObserver.com. And go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com if you want to join the waiting list. Uh, we are sold out. We've been sold out for about a month now. We set sail on January 20th. Uh, if you want to get on the waiting list and come be a part of it with Fozzie, AEW, Ric Flair, uh, go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Sign up for the waiting list now. And if somebody drops out, you too can be on board. Once again, AEW superstars are going to be there. The Young Bucks, Kenny Omega, Cody and Brandy Rhodes, Hangman Page, John Moxley, Luchasaurus, Jungle Boy, Nyla Rose, Penelope Ford, Sammy Guevara, Private Party. It's going to be a rock and roll party for sure. Uh, DDP is going to be there beyond the darkness. We're all sold out. Once again, go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Sign up for the waiting list now. All right, have a, a great weekend. And uh, in the, remember this uh, Wednesday, we got a tribute to Big Titan. Uh, second Razor Ramon in the WWE. 
a good friend of mine. I got Don Callis here and Paul Lazenby here, frequent guests of Talk is Jericho, to talk about our uh, late great friend, Big Titan, Big Rick Titan, Razor Rick, uh, good guy and uh, lots of great memories there. So have a great weekend and we will see you on Wednesday. Remember, if you live in Seattle, Brian Alvarez will be signing copies of his book uh, tomorrow, oh, sorry, on Saturday. October 12th in the Seattle area. So go check that out and we will check you out uh, next Wednesday. In the meantime and in between time, stay cool, stay hard, stay hungry, stay wet, and a big, yeah, boy!